Welcome back today from the bridge. This is the place we talk sports and entertainment and sponsorship, a little marketing, a little special events, pretty much you name it here each week. I'm your hosting guide, Rick Jones of Fishbait Solution, and I'm glad you're here with us today. Uh, we're going to talk today about operations. Uh, you guys all know operations. That's the people and processes that actually run events. <laughs> They actually make the crazy things that I and others make up turn into reality. My special guest today knows a whole lot about operations. It's Clint Overby, the new head of ESPN Events, who oversees over 30 annual events for the Walt Disney Company. He'll be here to talk about his new role at ESPN Events and his plans to grow their business. We'll also jump back up on the soapbox and point out another fun place to eat on the road with Rick. Operations. Wow. Easy word to say. <laughs> Damned hard to actually do. My business partner at Engagement, Mike Millay, who's actually been a guest on our show, is what I call an operational savant. He can attend an event and find dozens of operational ways to improve it instantaneously. My brain simply doesn't work that way. I like to think that I'm a fan anthropologist who then takes what I think fans want or will want and then build an architecture to do just that. In fact, I'm really more of an event real estate developer. I can see all elements of the development. I can see all elements of the event as an old basketball coach, I like to organize my thoughts on a chalkboard. I'm famous for my yellow pads, which are versions of a chalkboard for me. And they actually is a place where I put down ideas and concepts. I think I would have made a great general contractor, but a pretty lousy plumber. Operators are the framers and the roofers and the plumbers and the electricians of the, of the events business. I don't possess those skills, but I greatly admire those who have those talents. Someone once said, it's not the bear in the woods that gets you, it's the mosquitoes. <laughs> that about sums up operations. It's the zillion little things that collectively add up to success for an event or for an organization. Next time you go to a baseball game, take a look around at all of the operational processes there are. Let's just take concessions for a moment. Someone has to take stock of what food and paper products are in the concession stand. Someone has to order the food and drinks products. Someone has to deliver the products. Then someone else has to actually bring them to the individual concession stands. Someone has to prepare the food products. Someone has to take your order, handle your payment, hand you the products, and point out where the condiments might be located while someone else continues to cook. Then someone has to clean the concession stand, take inventory again, and do it all over again the very next day. And that's just concessions. There are restroom services, parking services, security services, game attendants, sports riders, before and in-game promotions, fireworks at the end of the game, and more and more and more. Because nothing just happens. It takes preparations and processes and training and retraining. 
Thank goodness for operators. They make the magic happen. My guest today knows a lot about making magic. Clint Overby has spent a large part of his career working at ESPN events under the legendary Pete Derzis, who recently retired after over 30 years at ESPN. And Clint was the natural choice to replace Pete, though I might say that Pete is irreplaceable. I've previously told you that I hear a song in my head or via my Alexa speaker when I prepare these podcasts. Today's song would be Jimmy Buffett's Changes in Latitude, Changes in Attitude, because that's exactly what Clint is doing in his new role. He's changing, and that's a good thing. Let's welcome Clint to the bridge. Hey, Clint, we're glad you're with us today. Good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to it. This will be fun. Let, I always tell all the guests, let's start from the beginning. You know, where'd you grow up? Were you, did you play sports? Did you, did you love sports? Tell me about your background. Yeah, I, I grew up in a small town in central Wisconsin uh, called Wapaka. And uh, I grew up playing football and baseball and uh, really, you know, fell in love with playing football and being around sports at an, at an early age. And so everything I did was kind of geared around that. And so when I, when I graduated high school, um, I went to University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire and played three injury-plagued years there at, uh, for football or in, in, on the team. And, um, you know, as I kept getting hurt, I kept finding myself wanting to find ways to get back, you know, on the team or around the team or do something. And eventually wound up, wound up in the SID office, you know, covering the team and, and being around it that way. But, yeah, I was, I was definitely, you know, a sports junkie as a kid and, you know, grew up a Packer fan and all things Wisconsin, so – yeah, I just I grew up playing sports and, and really having it ingrained in me at an early age. What was your first job out of college? <laughs> I, I had three jobs out of college. Of course you uh, did. <laughs> you know, wasn't just the problem was it wasn't just one. I was I felt like I was always trying to uh, you know serve something. No, I I I, I worked for on a city grounds crew literally right after I graduated to earn money so I could get married. And then when I got married, we got married right out of college. Um, we moved to Lexington, Kentucky, and I was a bartender and I was a grad assistant uh, at the University of Kentucky teaching, you know, racquetball and weightlifting classes. And on the side, you know, I was, you know, I was bartending, you know, at night. So I was, I was trying to make ends meet any way I could. You know, I always laugh at people that don't understand what it takes to start and sustain a career in sports you know you just do whatever it takes i you know some i went to graduate school and and i in order to get um, out of state tuition waived because I'd, I'd lived out of state coaching um if you taught public school they would waive it <laughs> and so i ended up in the decatur school system teaching elementary school pe at seven schools 52 classes a week and, and if you do the math there are five work days it doesn't work out so you know three days i didn't get lunch because i'm driving to another school to do all that and then i worked the weekends at the the graveyard shift at scottish right hospital for children in the purchasing department uh 11 p.m to 7 a.m on friday and saturday nights and i took 22 hours of graduate school at the same time you know and that's what you did i mean you, you know you're married you're trying to 
pay your bills, you're trying to get ahead in this business, and you work three jobs. <laughs> and so I don't have a lot of patience for young people that say, well, that's hard. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's hard. But that did that leave you did that lead you to host communications at that point? It did, Rick. You know, it's funny, and 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 I say this, you know, in all seriousness. I mean, I, it, it, you know, it's you know, you say it out loud now, and like, wow, it seems like a lot. It really, it was just what you did, right? And you know, to to go to school and and to kind of fit all the pieces together, you just you just kind of kind of pulled up your boots and did it. But you know, it did lead me to host in that my second semester at the University of Kentucky as as a grad student. Um, we had a we had a a person who's already interning there come and give a. I guess a little talk on, on interning at host because they needed people to come work the final four. And I literally ran to the front of the line right after, right after class to introduce myself. And, you know, she gave me, you know, she gave me a number to, to, to host, to talk to and interview with. And, you know, after a really clumsy interview, they, they actually hired me on the spot, which was nice. And um, that's how I got started with host. That, that was my second semester. And so, and of course, in those days, internships were mostly unpaid, which mine was unpaid. So when I say I was hired, I was actually just, you know, I was basically drafted um, and, and and I worked for free, you know, so I had my, my, my you know, my part-time gigs and my teaching and, you know, going to class, but I was also working host probably 15, 20 hours a week at, at those days, uh, you know, on a volunteer basis just to, just to get the experience. So, yeah. Well, you know, you were at host at a time, I, I've told this you know, there's a there are three family trees. I think in the sports marketing business, there's the the Mark McCormick classic IMG yeah. tree. There's the ProServe Advantage. You know, Frank Craig Hill, Donald Dell. Uh, you know, David Falk tree, and then there's the Jim Host tree. I mean, the people that came out of Host uh, and originated Host, I, I'd go to war with that team any day of the week. I mean, think about the guys you had a chance to be around and, and, and work with. It was, it was a tough bunch. I mean, those people were tried and true and, and, and they, and they were all just so good at their jobs. I mean, you, there was, there was no, there was no weak link at host, you know, in those days. And, and I, I always felt amazed to just see the talent in any, in any meeting and just kind of hear these people talk. So I, you know, I was so fortunate really in my career here, from all these people and, and learn from them and kind of hear their experiences. Cause I, you know, listen, I was young and just kind of learning the business, but these people were living it. And, and you know, to your point going to war every day. And uh, it, it was, it was an exciting place to start. And I feel really fortunate to, to have started my time, you know, during that main street office there in Lexington, Kentucky, cause it was, uh, you know, it, you never would have known that the heartbeat of college sports marketing ran through a tiny office in, in downtown Lexington. Well, I really did at that time, and you know, Jim is such a dear friend, and it's been such a mentor to me. But, but you know, his partner Chuck Jarvie is a guy that rarely gets any credit, but he was a guy that was probably the best boss I ever had. Um, he, he he was just a brilliant marketer, and I know you had a chance to spend some time with him too. And Chuck Chuck was, you know, it's funny. There, there's 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 great partnerships, and 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 Jim was always a great idea guy. And, the visionary so he was he was kind of the walt disney and and, and i was considered chuck the roy disney you know, you know that's a great know, way Jim to was say out that. There yeah pitching the vision and then you know shark would be there actually making the business work and, and providing the infrastructure to, to to build it out and, and so i would i'd learned a lot from chuck and just kind of watching him you know obviously you know jim's a first ballot hall of fame and everybody knows who he is but chuck chuck is no less right he is a first ballot hall of famer as well 
just people don't have the same name recognition with him as they do with Jim. Um, but yeah, my, my interaction with Chuck were always very, very um, meaningful. Right. And, you know, Chuck had a way about him and making every moment mean something. And, and I was appreciated that. I like the fact that he seemed to always be about a decade ahead. <laughs> you know, I mean, he talked about total campus marketing before yeah. anybody ever did it. He talked about promotional advertising before anybody did it. And, um, and I, I just loved, I just loved listening to the way he thought about the business, um, and, and, and looked at it differently. Um, and he was just, he was a, a guy that always, like you said, from an operational standpoint, he was a guy that just always figured out how to get it done. You know, there, there's, there's always a way to get it done. Um, well, I, what I liked about Chuck, it was always about accountability. What are you accountable to? And, and I, I just felt like Chuck was really good at ingraining that. In, in his direct reports and people around him, because I think it's easy to get in your job and, and just kind of do the job and maybe not know what you're doing it for. Chuck was really good about articulating why we're doing this and what we're going towards. And I was, again, I feel like that's a great learning for a lot of people. Just what are we accountable to in our day-to-day tasks? Well, when did you go to work for ESPN? So in 2001, I, my, my first day at ESPN was June 1, 2001. And, and uh, it, it, you know, it was a, Great day for me and, and, you know, great growth opportunity. They actually needed someone to come manage their Big 12 relationship in the Big 12 office. So I was stationed in Dallas at the time working at host. And so when ESPN came down, ESPN regional, and actually um, they just said, hey, go work in the Big 12 office and, you know, work on the marketing and sales program and build it out for us because we don't have it built out. So, I, you know, it was kind of like starting a business from scratch. Because there was no real infrastructure for for our part of the business at ESPN Regional Television, so um, you know, I built out our conference right relationship and took our existing partners, try to extend all those agreements and create a credible marketing program around their conference rights and uh, build it out from there. But it was a great experience, and you know, I I, I enjoyed being in the conference office environment because you got kind of a ground floor view of what their world was like. So it provided me a great hands on appreciation for the collegiate, you know, lifestyle and their pressures and dynamics and challenge that goes on in their world and how it intersects with you know, obviously conference rights and marketing and ESPN and everything. So it was a really good start to, to my career at ESPN. Uh, you know, I think that's so s- smart that you say that, the, the, you know, the collegiate e- ecosystem, it's complicated. It, it It's, you know, I mean, number one, we laugh, it, it's, it's probably – if you, if you, you totally make this is my business model, I'm, I'm going to have this this business model that one sport makes money, one sport breaks even, and everything else loses money. <laughs> You're going to go, oh, that's your business model, uh, yeah. But 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 it is. But you know, in your job, your job now, and the job that you've been doing, you have to you have to understand the needs of conferences and the needs of schools in a way that I think is unique to the television business um, because you really have to understand that, that, that ecosystem and all that. And I think that was the period that ESPN was in kind of the multimedia rights business with some schools too. I think if I remember correctly, you not only had the big 12, but maybe there were some schools that, that ESPN represented at the time. That is correct. This was the first all encompassing conference agreement that they had. So it was a little bit different. You know, when you do the school business, you know, you've got, you know, it's it's a different model in that you've got basketball games and football games and baseball games and all these different marketing assets to draw from on an annualized basis. 
With the conference rights, you're trying to tie to media and these keystone events throughout the year. And then you're trying to build value and other key, other events that maybe don't have the same visibility. And so it's it's a different animal. And, and so when they brought me in, they basically acquired the, the Big 12 rights away from Host at the time. And Host had an infrastructure built out. Well, ESPN didn't bring that infrastructure with them. And so I, I was kind of in that mindset of having to pull all that together and um, you know, again, being in that big 12 ecosystem, as you call it, was, was really invaluable for me. I'm not sure I would have had the same kind of success without being in that role there in that office because it allowed me to collaborate, work with the league and find those common needs because it is a give and take. Right. You know, as much as we want to focus on football, now we got to focus on, on baseball. We want to focus on baseball. We need swimming and diving. You know, so it was it was always a give and take and trying to hit the right buttons for the league and. And obviously service student-athletes because, you know, it is about that at the end of the day. Yeah, it really is. But, you know, it's interesting about learnings. I, I think ESPN learned from that two things. Number one, they learned what they did right, which was put you in the office. But maybe secondly, they learned what they didn't do correctly, which was not acquire an existing ecosystem. And I think when they acquired the SEC rights, you know, they realized we better put somebody in the SEC office because that model works. But secondarily, they said, why don't we just take somebody that's been here before? And so Ben May, who had been, you know, with host, um, ends up over on the ESPN side. And I think that was an easier transition. So I think people learned from both both sides of it. No doubt. And I think the way we built out the SEC, Rick, was – you know, was inspired, you know, no doubt. And, and I think we got the right people in place and definitely around the big, you know, the SEC office and having more than one person kind of act as fulfillment seller, you know, negotiator is, is, is much more beneficial and optimal than having one try to do all those things. Well, you worked a long, long time for one of the legends in the business, Pete Durgis. What did you learn from him? Oh my gosh, where do I start? I, I, the, the, your, your podcast doesn't have enough bandwidth to, for me to sit and go through all Pete's stories. <laughs> Uh, but 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 first and foremost, you know, for those of you who know Pete and, and Rick, certainly you do. Um, Pete Pete is Pete's one of those guys that you don't realize how patient he is until you look back on on his career. And 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 Pete's got this kind of drop driven mentality where we're going to push things through and make it work. Pete's actually a really calculated and patient guy, and and I learned that firsthand just in his experiences with me or how he dealt with me because. When I came to ESPN, you know, back in 2001, I was young. I, I, I was very raw and didn't have, you know, didn't have any of Pete's experiences. So for him to come and sit and really be patient with me through the years and provide me the guidance and teaching and the mechanism and the perspectives required to grow people, I never would have been in the position I'm in today. So I would just say Pete provided for me what I hope to provide for others in my career, which is patience and perspective. And that's, that's Pete's two biggest strengths. Um, he, he's got a wonderful perspective on our business because he's obviously experienced it. He's experienced it on the collegiate side. You know, he's had to, you know, certainly he's had to go through a couple different corporate iterations when we were creative sports into ERT, then to ESPN events. So Pete's perspective is world-class and his patience is top-notch. Well, y- y'all saw through the era that you've been there, so many, you know, changes, there have been changes in, you know, how many ball games we can have, uh, how you structure ball games, you have how many, 
independent basketball tournaments, and you have you, you know you, you you had to read the tea leaves, but you had to be read the tea leaves and jump quickly when they you know presented themselves because there are other people. You know, they're not any competitors like ESPN events, but there are competitors in that space that wanted to be in it. And, and I think y'all stayed ahead of the curve. But you said, I love that patience word. You were, you did it at the exact right time, if that makes sense. Yep. Um, yeah, it, it's funny, you know, for every meeting I'd sit with Pete and feel like we were moving too fast on certain things. There was probably another dozen discussions where we were waiting for the right time. You, you know, you just said it best, Rick. I mean, you know, for us to launch, you know, the, the 17 bowl games we've launched over the last 20 years, you know, those have come at, at, at inflection points, you know, that, that are calculated. Right? And, you know, they, they come to serve a need for the schools who have been underserved. You know, the, the reason why the bowl system has grown is, is because there were teams who were simply being left out of the postseason. And those conferences couldn't be in a position to let their teams not have a postseason opportunity. So, we had the scale and the infrastructure to build it out. And that's where Pete's vision comes to light in my mind, very positively uh, because he, he kind of had that in the back of his mind that as more teams, you know, were certainly in a position to be left out, we would be in a position to help support their postseason opportunities. And that's, and that's how it played out. Well, I, I have to laugh when people tell me they think there are too many ball games. I say, you ought to talk to the 87th and 88th team. Yeah. They, they love being there. And, and 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 there's a joy for them and for their fans. And had we not expanded, like you said, they would be sitting home. They wouldn't do that. And then I also remind everybody that the worst bowl game outrages the best college basketball game. Uh, there's there's a huge demand for college football all the time. That's that's always been an anecdotal narrative, Rick. In my opinion, you know, it's something to write about at the end of the year, you know, and, and get into the differentiation of. You know, obviously, you know, there, there is a hierarchy or there's a perceived hierarchy in all this. And I think what what, what maybe gets noted sometimes is a very elitist view of, of the bowl game enterprise. Right. You know, well, the games don't mean anything. Well, well, are you actually playing in those games to make that statement? Because when we see teams hoist a trophy at name your bowl, right, Boca Raton, Armed Forces, wherever, those kids seem genuinely happy to be raising that trophy. They don't look like they're embarrassed by it. So I think I think I think this narrative is written from a very elitist point of view, as opposed to what is actually what is actually truly happening there. And to your point, the ratings are strong. You know, the kids enjoy the experiences. The fan, the fan, the fan aspect. You know, for all the sports, continues to be somewhat you know of, of a moving target, but it's not outside of the scope of the regular season at this point. So I think all the empirical data suggests that bowl games still have great value in the landscape. Well, I'll point out one game last year. The Cure Bowl had Liberty in Coastal Carolina. A game of the year, and and had y'all not done what you did over the twenty year period, they would have not played. That's right. That's right. And so you know, you're given so many more opportunities for um, for young people, and and I think that's 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 why we do this ultimately, and that's why y'all do what y- you do, Clint. I got to believe. That in your entire career last year had to be the most challenging ever. I mean, I mean, every day was just you know a disaster with COVID nineteen. You're trying to figure out: can we have events? Can we not have events? What do we have to do to keep people safe? You know, and then you had basketball. You looked at the Orlando 
bubble that um, the NBA had done, and you said maybe we can replicate that. And then you figure out, no, we can't because there are protocol differences, but I've got to save some college basketball events. And so then you're moving them to Indianapolis. Just, just talk a little bit about, about what last year was like for you. Um, that, that's also in itself a long podcast, yeah, yeah, Rick. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it's funny, and, it, and it's very, you know, it, and it, 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 you know, invokes a little PTSD, I think, for everybody. And and, and listen, it, it wasn't, you know, it's not unique to us. You know, everybody experienced some some level of challenge, frustration, you know, interruption, whatever you call it. And so, while I certainly sit here can can suggest it was a hard year. I know I'm not alone there. You know, because I've sat with. You know, a lot of people in our industry, Rick, as I know you have as well, and, and I think my experiences can be can be amplified or mirrored through you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of other people in our industry who were impacted as well. So I, our impacts were, were obviously significant. You know, you used a good word earlier. You know, we had to pivot on top of pivot on top of pivot last year, and 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 as much as you wanted to have a strategy, try to you know lay that strategy out. It was it was effectively worthless the second it was on paper because things would keep changing, and 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 the thing that we noted last year and and I think it came true and even may even come true in the future is because protocols weren't uniform by any stretch. Right? You know, you'd have guidance from the NCAA, you'd have mandates by the leagues, you'd have school guidance, and you'd have local municipal guidance. None of those in extreme cases were the same. Now, in those cases when they were the same, it worked out just fine. But when they weren't the same, it was a huge challenge. And that's effectively what killed the Orlando bubble that we were trying to put together. You know, Disney had one set of guidance, which in my mind was the, the CDC guidance and was laid out just fine. You know, you had the conference guidance, which, you know, with all the teams we were trying to bring in, inevitably one conference was not going to be the same as others. In our case, it was actually two to three conferences, not the same. And once those things started to play out, it just it wasn't it wasn't tenable to keep together. So we pivot on top of pivot, you know, took the champions and Jimmy V to Indianapolis and were able to stage those two events, you know, with a truncated basketball season to effectively start the season, which I'm incredibly proud of our people and, and the teams and everybody who participated. But you know, Rick, to your point, it wasn't easy, but but incredibly proud we got the content on here, you know, for you know, certainly for Baylor, it was kind of the launching point for you know, their tournament run and ultimately their national championship. So from my standpoint, it, you know, it launched the season the right way with the right teams. And, uh, and, and I hope we never have to do it again. Yeah, <laughs> so no, I'm, I'm glad, yeah. I'm glad, I'm glad we got through it and I'm glad we, you know, had the resources and the people and everything kind of aligned and rowing the right direction. But in my mind, that's a one-time effort. That you don't want to have to go through again. Well, I, I, I um, I previously said I, I worked for a guy named Jay Rhodes at, at a camp one year. He was a basketball coach at Limestone College, and his favorite line was, hey, babe, anybody can go when they're well. And, uh, and, and, and last year, nobody was well. And, and, and I think you learn a lot about your team in crisis, you know, when you, like you said, when you pivot and repivot and repivot again, because it was like, it was like there was new information not only every day. It was almost like, it was almost like every hour. Um, that you were getting new things in terms of protocols and how do you keep people safe and what are you going to do about scheduling and and then how are you going to get people, you know, how are you going to get people from point A to point B? I, I remember going to, to the Final Four and, and the Final Four was so surreal for me because I think it was my 26th Final Four 
And, and my son Ryan and I were there for a week, and, and we never saw a single person we knew. I mean, you know, in a normal Final Four, I probably know a 1,000 people, and, and there was nobody that we knew. But I, I flew up on the plane with Charles Barkley, and, you know, I, I kidded him about going to St. Elmo's. He said, we can't even leave the hotel. I mean, yeah. they're going to yeah. pick me up and take me to the hotel, and I'm going to be in a bubble. And I thought, this is just so surreal. And y'all had the same situation. I mean, y- y'all had to put – number yeah. one, you had to keep your people safe. And yeah, no, we, I mean, true. I'm just what a mess. Yeah. yeah, we had to start. We had to start with our people. You know, certainly we want to make sure our people were in a position to be safe to do their jobs. Yeah, that that was you know, and and that that's the imperative guideline you've got to go with first is making sure your people are in a position to do their jobs safely and efficiently. The second part, because now you're responsible once you take these teams on, whether it be football or basketball. And, and listen, it, we it play the same way in football too. You know, we had to work to make sure that testing guidelines for the schools were consistent with our guidelines and that, you know, people were not let into the, you know, into the facility, you know, who had either, you know, exhibited symptoms or who had obviously tested positive and making sure that people had the confidence to go through with the event. Because the other part that we, that we really haven't touched on is, you know, it was, there was also a lot of fear last year, you know, so, and, and maybe fears are wrong, it was really trepidation. So at every turn, when we would try to do something, we were having to really explain how things would work and making and, and for the right reasons, by the way, but making sure people felt comfortable with the decision so that they could move forward as well with confidence. So, you know, there was a lot of back and forth last year, just making sure everybody understood that number one, it's about safety of employees and participants and fans, whatever fans look like last year. And then making sure everybody understood that those plans were legit plans and not, just something you you wrote down on a you know on a piece of paper and passed back around. They were legit enforceable plans, and that you followed them. And and to the credit of teams and participants and fans, people pretty much played along. We didn't have a lot of issues once everybody agreed to the plan. We were able to indoctrinate it in a pretty good way. So from that standpoint, feel very good about how things played out. But yes, Rick, it definitely started with, with our our team members first, feeling like they were safe and could do their job. Well, I also know that y'all. Ultimately, were the guinea pig for the NCAA. They watched what y'all did in Indy and replicated almost a hundred percent of the processes procedures y'all put in. Yeah, they, they they built out. Obviously, the scale was much much greater with them. But yeah, we, you know, feel very good about you know taking over you know Bankers Life Fieldhouse the way we did and locking it down and creating the tiered structure. And but you know, we worked closely with Danny Gavin and his team. And just kind of explaining how we were going to do it. So, you know, and, and, and we took their feedback as well. Now, we couldn't institute their scale because they've got, you know, they've got greater resources on that front. But we could do it on a smaller scale and make it work for the, you know, the 16 we had, you know, in Indianapolis for our deal. So, it, yeah, no doubt. But the NCAA played a role, at least from a consultancy standpoint, of being, you know, kind of being present in our, in our stuff. Well, I look back and I think history will judge getting a men's basketball tournament and a women's basketball tournament to the finish line last year was a miracle. Oh. I mean, because of all these things that you're talking about, all the, 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 the things that no one had ever thought about in terms of disinfecting and cleaning and getting people from point A to point B, getting people fed, getting, you know, I, I mean, just the logistical, again, all these operational issues that, the people that are not familiar with the ecosystem of the business have no clue. They just, you know, they turn on their TV and they see an event. They go, oh, that's great. They go, no, it wasn't quite that easy. 
No, Ricky, you're 100 percent right. And the NBA bubble gets all the you know kind of all the press because how it you know it was kind of first to to give it a, a give it a go. But the NCAA tournament and the NCAA deserves a lot of credit here. And again, I go back to Dan Gavin, his staff. They deserve a lot of credit for orchestrating that you know that that bubble in in that term and using the facilities, the hotels, you know, the movements, the coordination. That was a dramatic undertaking, right? Um, and I don't think it can be undersold as 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 a great job by the NCA. They 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 deserve all the credit there because it it really did play out as positively as it could have. Well, let's now pivot ourselves. Uh, you've now taken the reins. You, you know, you not only have to maintain what has been created, but you also got to grow. Talk talk a little bit about about both of those, maintaining the standards that y'all have established, but secondarily, you know, growing your division. Yeah, I think for Frank, really good question. I think I think first and foremost, you know, it's it's taking those 35 businesses we currently have, you know, the 17 bowl games, 11 basketball events, the five early season football games, the softball event, all the other stuff we've got, you know, kind of on the roster and making sure that those continue to be um, a service to the company and to the marketplace, right. And service to the company from a content standpoint and a service to the marketplace with respect to providing opportunities for schools and fans and, and, and all the things that build out collegiate events. So, I, lo- I love that you use that word service because, in essence, everything you do is about serving somebody in the ecosystem. Without question, it's who, it's who we're accountable to, Rick. I mean, we're not. I mean, we're accountable to the company, you know, to to maintain whatever measure of success that they're asking for, right? So that's number one, and two, and not not necessarily in order, but making sure we're accountable to you know the the, the ecosystem, the marketplace, in a way that provides value. I mean, I, that, that's, I mean, it, it's real easy to kind of bully your business down to what you're accountable to and service those objectives. That That's the critical aspect for me. And I feel that's what, you know, ultimately my main charge is here as we get started, you know, as, as, as Pete has kind of passed on the playbook and he wrote a really good playbook. So I don't have to deviate a whole lot from it, to be honest with you. It's taking that playbook and making sure we use it and we articulate it and that we use it to, 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 to again, service and, and be accountable to, to the people we're accountable to. So from that standpoint, it's, it's maintaining and, 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 and solidifying our core business and then growth. You know, I, I think, you know, I think Rick, we're in such a interesting time in collegiate athletics. You know, I think before I can start saying this is what we're going to you know, point at in terms of growth opportunities. I think, I think things need to kind of shake out over the next, you know, few months and then we can start seeing where the opportunities may be to see where we can continue to service the needs of the company and the marketplace. But, you know, we certainly are always going to be in a growth mode. You know, growth for us comes in a lot of different ways, but certainly the addition or creation of events is part of that. And uh, and once things start to shake out over the next, like I said, you know, six, seven months, then we can start seeing where our where our opportunities are and where we can fit the best needs within the marketplace. Well, I know y'all just recently announced this new event in 2022, the Jumpman Classic in Charlotte. I had a, had a chance to have breakfast with Danny Morrison um, last week, and and he um, he was ecstatic about it, about the partnership with you guys and a, a really cool concept. Um, talk a little bit about that event. Yeah, listen, all, all the credit goes to Danny and the Charlotte Sports Foundation. You know, part of our you know, part of our business is built on finding and working with great partners and, and Danny and his team are, are certainly in that mold. So we're looking forward to it. You know, legacy event, you know, there, there's no doubt with those four programs, uh, you automatically have a legacy foundation to, to build out. And, and here in Charlotte, you know, where we're at, 
um, I think, I think from that standpoint, you know, a lot of positives come from there. And I really love the fact that we're, we're, we're engaging on the men's and women's side um, because the Jordan brands represents, you know, both men's and women's basketball from that standpoint. And we're excited to represent, represent basketball in a, you know, in a continued inclusive way. So I think it's a great opportunity for everybody and looking forward to being there on December 21st of 2022. That's going to be really good. Well, it's an exciting time as people come back to events. What most excites you about it? Honestly, Rick, just being in person, you know, and, and, and for me, you know, I, I was never not in person throughout the pandemic because we did stage events and did stage things, but being able to do it in a way where you know you know people are enjoying it because last year when we had events you know everything was so muted you know there wasn't the ability to really you know have have people together there really wasn't an opportunity to to visit there really wasn't an opportunity to to kind of enjoy the spoils of culminating a year with a bowl game or having a keystone event in maui or in certain other basketball areas so for me it's about just being able to utilize and be a part of these events in a way that they're intended um, so that people enjoy them and enjoy them to their fullest extent, as opposed to, you know, having to be careful where they go or they can't go in certain spots or they've got to use this entrance and this entrance only. Um, you know, it, all of the stuff that we you know, have been interrupted with the last you know, 14, 15, 16 months, just not having to deal with those things is what I'm most looking forward to. And I know we're not out of that yet. And that'll be a, a be a process. But uh just being back in person and using the events as they're intended is kind of kind of what I'm looking forward to. Well, it's a new era at ESPN Events with a new sheriff in town, and I think it's very exciting. So, Clint, thank you so much for being with us today from the bridge. Rick, thank you. Really enjoyed my time with you. It's time for another trip up on the old soapbox. Folks that know me know I am not a patient person. In fact, I have a statue of a vulture on my desk that says, patience my ass, I'm going out and kill something. (laughs) I've I've actually always been that way. I, I went to student teach right out of college, and I was fortunate enough to get hired as the athletic director and teacher and coach there. And they gave me an eighth grade student assistant you know, who knew how to run the mimeograph machine. Her name was Liz Smith. We remain friends to this day. But when I turned 22 that March in my first year of teaching, this eighth grader gave me that statue of a vulture. She had me figured out very, very quickly. So I've had to learn to be a little bit patient. But here's one thing that drives me crazy. Every time I go to a fast food restaurant and order through the drive-thru, I'm never sure what exactly I'm going to get. So I've learned to wait at the drive-in window to check what they've actually put in the bag before I drive out. Like I said, because most of the time it's wrong, except at Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A often has as many as three drive-thru lanes and they seem to get all of the orders correct. Now, why is that? Obviously, it's their operational processes. They know how to get you through the drive-through quickly and equally importantly, with the actual food you ordered. What a concept. Maybe the other fast food chains should learn from Chick-fil-A. 
or maybe I should just eat all my meals on the road at Chick-fil-A. And that's my view from the soapbox. But let's close the show with someplace other than Chick-fil-A to eat on the road with Rick. Working with our client Warner Ladder for the past 11 years, we've made quite a few trips to Mooresville, North Carolina to meet with their biggest retailer, Lowe's. My friend Julie Cunningham, who works at Lowe's, turned me on to a great breakfast spot near Lowe's headquarters. It's the Sun Up Cafe right off of I-77. They have great breakfasts, wonderful omelets like the Southern. The Southern is an omelet with three eggs, bacon, tomato, and pimento cheese topped with sausage gravy. That's the one you have to bring your cardiologist with you when you eat. They also have corned beef hash and eggs, which I really love, homemade donut holes, shrimp and grits, eggs benedicts, pancakes, and French toast. They've got really good grits and coffee. So next time you find yourself traveling up I-77, stop in for breakfast at the Sun Up Cafe on the road with Rick. I appreciate you tuning in today and look forward to having you back again next week. Thanks again to Clint Overby of ESPN Events for being our guest angler today. Come back to see us next week from the bridge.